You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. It was the night before New Year's and all through the house. Oh, dang it. It doesn't have the same ring, does it? Well, sorry I'm late. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part eight, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to the second annual and slightly delayed Christmas special for Monster Talk. After watching the HBO series True Detective, I knew which creepy story I wanted to read this year. I'd like to talk briefly about this story, but my discussion will have spoilers, so I'm going to put it after the story. This episode's story is An Inhabitant of Carcosa by Ambrose Bierce, first published in 1886 this small story has a big footprint in American literature. And we'll get to that after the story. For there be diverse sorts of death, some wherein the body remaineth, and in some it vanisheth quite away with the spirit. This commonly occurreth only in solitude, such is God's will. And, not seeing the end, we may say the man is lost or gone on a long journey, which indeed he hath. But sometimes it hath happened in the sight of many, as abundant testimony showeth. In one kind of death the spirit also dieth, and this it hath been known to do while yet the body was in vigor for many years. Sometimes, as veritably attested, it dieth with the body, but after a season is raised up again in that place where the body did decay. Pondering these words of Holly, whom God rest, and questioning their full meaning, as one who, having an intimation, yet doubts if there be not something behind other than that which he has discerned, 
I noted not whither I had strayed until a sudden chill wind striking my face revived in me a sense of my surroundings. I observed with astonishment that everything seemed unfamiliar. On every side of me stretched a bleak and desolate expanse of plain, covered with a tall overgrowth of sear grass, which rustled and whistled in the autumn wind with heaven knows what mysterious and disquieting suggestion. Protruded at long intervals above it, stood strangely shaped and somber-colored rocks which seemed to have an understanding with one another and to exchange looks of uncomfortable significance, as if they had reared their heads to watch the issue of some foreseen event. A few blasted trees here and there appeared as leaders in this malevolent conspiracy of silent expectation. The day, I thought, must be far advanced, though the sun was invisible, and although sensible that the air was raw and chill, my consciousness of that fact was rather mental than physical, I had no feeling of discomfort. Over all the dismal landscape, a canopy of low, lead-colored clouds hung like a visible curse. In all this, there were a menace and portent, a hint of evil, an intimation of doom. Bird, beast, or insect, there were none. The wind sighed in the bare branches of the dead trees, and the gray grass bent to whisper its dread secret to the earth. But no other sound nor motion broke the awful repose of that dismal place. I observed in the herbage a number of weather-worn stones, evidently shaped with tools. They were broken, covered with moss, and half-sunken in the earth. Some lay prostrate, some leaned at various angles, none was vertical. They were obviously headstones of graves, though the graves themselves no longer existed, as either mounds or depressions, the years had leveled all. Scattered here and there, more massive blocks showed where some pompous tomb or ambitious monument had once flung its feeble defiance at oblivion. So old seemed these relics, the vestiges of vanity and memorials of affection and piety, so battered and worn and stained, so neglected, deserted, forgotten the place that I could not help thinking myself the discoverer of the burial ground of a prehistoric race of men whose very name was long extinct. Filled with these reflections, I was for some time heedless of the sequence of my own experiences, but soon I thought, how came I hither? A moment's reflection seemed to make all this clear and explain at the same time, though in a disquieting way, the singular character with which my fancy had invested all that I saw or heard. I was ill. I remember now that I had been prostrated by a sudden fever, and that my family had told me that in my periods of delirium I had constantly cried out for liberty and air, and had been held in bed to prevent my escape out of doors. Now I had eluded the vigilance of my attendants and had wandered hither to... to where... I could not conjecture. Clearly, I was at a considerable distance from the city where I dwelt, the ancient and famous city of Carcosa. No signs of human life were anywhere visible, nor audible, no rising smoke, no watchdog's bark, no lowing of cattle, no shouts of children at play. Nothing but that dismal burial place with this air of mystery and dread due to my own disordered brain. Was I not becoming again delirious, there beyond human aid, was it not indeed all an illusion of my madness? I called aloud the names of my wives and sons, reached out my hands in search of theirs, even as I walked among the crumbly stones and the withered grass. A noise behind me caused me to turn about. A wild animal, 
a lynx was approaching, the thought came to me, if I break down here in the desert, if the fever returns and I fail, this beast will be at my throat. I sprang towards it, shouting. It trotted tranquilly by within a hand's breadth of me and disappeared behind a rock. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A moment later, a man's head appeared to rise out of the ground a short distance away. He was ascending the farther slope of a low hill whose crest was hardly to be distinguished from the general level. His whole figure soon came into view against the background of gray cloud. He was half naked, half clad in skins. His hair was unkempt, his beard long and ragged. In one hand, he carried a bow and arrow. The other held a blazing torch with a long trail of black smoke. He walked slowly and with caution, as if he feared falling into some open grave concealed by the tall grass. This strange apparition surprised but did not alarm, and taking such a course as to intercept him, I met him almost face to face, accosting him with the familiar salutation, "'God keep you!' He gave no heed, nor did he arrest his pace. "'Good stranger,' I continued. "'I'm ill and lost. Direct me, I beseech you, to Carcosa.' The man broke into a barbarous chant in an unknown tongue, passing on and away. An owl on the branch of a decayed tree hooted dismally and was answered by another in the distance. Looking upward, I saw through a sudden rift in the clouds... Aldebaran and the Hyades. In all this, there was a hint of night. The lynx, the man with the torch, the owl. Yet I saw, I saw even the stars in the absence of the darkness. I saw, but was apparently not seen nor heard. Under what awful spell did I exist? I seated myself at the root of a great tree, seriously to consider what it were best to do. 
that I was mad, I could no longer doubt, yet recognized a ground of doubt in that conviction. A fever I had no trace. I had, with all, a sense of exhilaration and vigor altogether unknown to me. A feeling of mental and physical exaltation. My senses seemed all alert. I could feel the air as a ponderous substance. I could hear the silence. A great root of the giant tree against whose trunk I leaned as I sat held enclosed in its grasp a slab of stone, a part of which protruded into a recess formed by another root. The stone was thus partly protected from the weather, though greatly decomposed. Its edges were worn around, its corners eaten away, its surface deeply furrowed and scaled. Glittering particles of mica were visible in the earth about it, vestiges of its decomposition. This stone had apparently marked the grave out of which a tree had sprung ages ago. The tree's exacting roots had robbed the grave and made the stone a prisoner. A sudden wind pushed some dry leaves and twigs from the uppermost face of the stone. I saw the low-relief letters of an inscription and bent to read it. God in heaven, my name in full, the date of my birth, the date of my death. A level shaft of light illuminated the whole side of the tree as I sprang to my feet in terror. The sun was rising in the rosy east. I stood between the tree and his broad red disc. No shadow darkened the trunk. A chorus of howling wolves saluted the dawn. I saw them sitting on their haunches, singly and in groups, on the summits of irregular mounds and tumuli, filling a half my desert prospect and extending to the horizon. And then I knew that these were the ruins of the ancient and famous city of Carcosa. Such are the facts imparted to the medium Bayroles by the spirit Joseb Alar Robardin. Ambrose Beers, you probably know him from his often anthologized story, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which deals with a similar twist ending. That famous tale even made it to the Twilight Zone. Interestingly, the version you see on the Twilight Zone was actually a French production, which was edited to fit the American show's format. Beers was a writer of horror and satire, as well as a journalist. He wrote many amusing definitions, which were collected in The Devil's Dictionary. An astonishing work of satire, which holds many timelessly apt definitions. But this story you just heard, An Inhabitant of Carcosa, was such a moody and evocative piece that it could not end in such a short story. Carcosa lived on. In 1895, a collection of stories by Robert W. Chambers titled The King in Yellow told of a play so mind-blasting that to witness it performed could drive one mad. The play itself is not completely presented in the work, but fragments, which are shared by Chambers, include references to Carcosa and other imagery from Beers' work. And a fan of Chambers' work, H.P. Lovecraft, took up both the King in Yellow and the Carcosa imagery as well, as did his literary circle of friends. Carcosa's roots spread far and wide. On the Wikipedia entry for Carcosa, you can read a lengthy list of authors whose works referenced this tale and Chambers' King in Yellow. Lovecraft seemed to me to be paying homage to Beers with his story, 
The Outsider, which has a similar theme of a narrator who has not recognized what changes have been wrought to himself and experiences disturbing horror when he finds the truth. And if you watch the HBO series True Detective, then you've already seen just how disturbing people's visions of Lost Carcosa can be. Dark stuff, indeed. But let me end on a lighter note. Monster Talk will be back in 2015 with new interviews and new topics, and I hope you all have a safe and happy new year. Thanks for listening. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. Music for this episode was by Sleep Tight and by Sleem. Links for both are in the show notes. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today.